0: Being able to do the presidential re-elect specifically looking at the Latino voter space, I don't know if there could be a more important thing to be tasked with. So it is a dream opportunity to be a part of that. The dream client exists and I've got it.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Colin Rojero, is co-founder and chief creative officer at Conexión, a new political media and communications consulting firm that specializes in reaching out to Hispanic audiences and beyond. They have blue chip clients ranging from the Biden 2024 campaign to Ruben Gallego for Senate in Arizona and many others. Colin has been in the business for a while and has a really good story about how he got his experience and made his reputation. I really enjoyed talking to him about his story and a range of related issues. Colin is a great guest, you should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Colin Rojero of Conexión.
0: This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization Using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G R A P H I C A C Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world.
1: Colin, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me. My name is Colin Rojero. I am a partner and co-founder in Conexion, which is one of the democratic industries first and most powerful multicultural firms that's geared at communicating with voters of color, specifically with Latino voters, both in English and Spanish.
1: That sounds like a good place to be. And I saw that you are gonna be working with the Biden campaign this year. And we all know that the fate of civilization is just in the balance on your work, so no pressure.
0: Just a small amount of responsibility on our shoulders here.
1: Yes. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what kind of background you have.
0: I think I have a background that is the farthest thing from probably politics that you could imagine. I am the son of two musicians, hippie musicians at that. Most of my early childhood and a large family, 30 some first cousins. So most of my childhood was kind of spent in this cross section of family, language, culture, music and creativity. And it really influenced the way that I approached the world and I never actually noticed it until I started kind of engaging in creative work itself. But grew up most of my life in South Florida and during that time period, which really kind of led to my departure, from South Florida was kind of time in athletics. I got a couple of football scholarship offers and was able to leave the state, was able to go to college. I was very blessed and lucky in that way. I started at Ohio University.
1: You must have been uh, seriously good at football then. That's a powerhouse.
0: I was pretty good. I was fast. I was a pretty consistent 4-4, 40-yard dash and 10, 700 meters in in high school and in college. So yeah, I I could move.
1: What position were you?
0: I was a running back and on special teams, I was a kick returner in high school, and then I kind of became a slot receiver in college. So I was like the Wes Welker position before there was a Wes Welker or Julian Edelman in the NFL.
1: Well, it strikes me as a good position to be fast because it's not good when you get caught.
0: It is not. It's not good when you get caught in almost any sense of that word.
1: <laughs> so the large family that you came from, where are the roots of that family?
0: It's multi-Hispanic. And my mom has some other things as well. But I think majority of it is Hispanic from a couple of different three countries, four countries, And multicultural. We have some African-American folks in the family as well that go generations back. And so it was really multicultural, largely Hispanic. I didn't realize until later in life, again, that I was largely influenced by these things. When you're in South Florida, Hispanic culture, Latino culture is just part of everyday life. And it's not, I think, until you are removed from that that you realize that it's a thing, which actually happened to me. And the the story I tell everybody about is I remember, because I was a football player, when I got to college my freshman year, we were there before anybody was there because we're doing the whole summer practice and all that. And I remember the first day I went to the lunchroom in this new university, and I walked in and I thought I'd step back in time. I thought I'd gone back to the 1950s because I looked around the lunchroom and everybody was separated by ethnicity. And I kind of didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go sit. Luckily, I did finally find a table that was kind of all athletes and folks that I, I was in practice with. So I, I found a place to go. But oh, I realized that my family and cultural experience growing up was a lot different than a lot of the rest of the country.
1: Did you stick with football through college? A lot of people who arrive there don't.
0: Yeah, no, I did, because I had to pay the bill. It was a great experience. I wouldn't change it for a number of reasons. That and different creative outlets were two of my first loves, film, acting, directing, and writing. It gave you a really regimented schedule, which I think is also very helpful when you're a young adult and there are all these different things that are pulling at you, especially the desire to party. And I'm, I'm a Miami guy, so partying is second nature, right? So having this regimented schedule where literally in the off season we would have to get up at 530 to be at the a.m. practice at 6 kept you mostly in line, right? It also helped with grades, too, because they had study tables, study tables you had to do until you had maintained a certain GPA, for an extended period of time, and they had tutors there and everything. So, you know, you jump into study tables and you have this designated classwork time. That also was pretty influential on me in being an entrepreneur and working in a space of media and politics when there's multiple things going on, it really taught me to be able to prioritize and set aside certain times to be able to accomplish these tasks, which is not necessarily a thing you learn when your parents are kind of unstructured and musicians and it's about creativity and within reason being free flowing.
1: You mentioned film and acting. At what point did you start with those pursuits?
0: It was kind of by accident and kind of not. My parents were always kind of very um, forceful in, in making myself and my, my two younger brothers at the time learn music, uh, be forced to go to piano lessons when we were kids, or learn to play the guitar, which we just learned kind of by proxy. And my mother's job, she was a choir director, and she was actually a choir director in the church. And so we had to learn scales and learn how to sing, because if we were not at like grandma's house after school, we were at the church and with the choir practice of which we were forced to participate. The kind of acting thing came by random. I was walking into the mall as a kid. I think it was around the holiday time with, I don't remember if it was my mom or with both my parents, but there was like a, a Midas casting agent there and they, he was like grabbing kids and doing. And so anyway, they grabbed me. My mom asked if I wanted to screen test. I said, Sure. And so I did it and they loved me. And then the next thing you knew, I was kind of like being cast in commercials for the next eight, 10 years. I I scaled it back when I became in high school and so heavily involved in athletics, baseball, football, soccer, basketball. I was kind of an all year round, almost all sport athlete, which is good because it kept me out of a lot of trouble that I probably would have gotten in had I not been so pre-committed in those things. Uh, but I I still was kind of involved in always being a part of the production community that existed at a at a young age. You know, I would help just by default to say, "Hey, can you know, Colin, you know how to do this stuff? Can you help us with the new show? Can you help me write this thing for my theater class? Would you be a partner for me in this theater class?" And then when I was in college, I was kind of trying to figure out, well, what is it that I actually want to do. And I went back to this kind of original skill set and I'm like, well, I know that I am good at these two things. I think I can design the stuff that is behind the camera. And so I kind of started in that direction and end up studying both film and advertising simultaneously.
1: That all makes sense in being part of the direction that you take later Which in I life. Which I never
0: thought I would get involved in politics. It's kind of, a, you know, it was the farthest thing from my mind ever. Well. There is
1: some kind of connection sometimes between sports and politics in the sense that they're both competitive endeavors with winners and losers. Do you think about that relationship or not really?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I think I was a little bit politically aware because... A lot of the music that I grew up hearing in English, the English music was kind of like the music of the 60s. So it was it was revolutionary and it was against the situation that was happening at the time. I knew all the lyrics and I could play some of the songs, but I didn't understand them until later and then realized kind of what it was and the impact it was and the counterculture that that music was built around and its importance in that movement at, in time. But to your specific question about the interplay between athletics and politics it's absolutely very very similar i think political campaigns are very similar to football specifically having played a lot of these team sports where you know football like you got a long season and a campaign is a long season and you kind of have to win this battle Step by step by step by step by game by game by game and make improvements and make changes and in that everybody kind of has their job in the words of Bill Belichick do your job but you also you know have to know what everyone else is doing so that you can be complimentary when you need to or make adjustments when someone needs help in a particular area and that is in sports and in in politics but I, I think like the underlying thing that's really appealing and and kept me in, engaged all these years continuing to do it, certainly the altruistic element and, and the idea that our work has an impact at the end. And, uh, but but this idea of competition, there's a winner and a loser, right? And if you have that competitive thing inside of you, and I think you know a lot of people are just born with it. I was always that way as far back as I can remember. Going back to our first couple of questions about being fast, it was like, I remember racing kids in the schoolyard for money right? Like I remember doing these kind of things that were all built on competition. And so the competition element is one of the things that I still love about it. I love the competition element at all levels, not just beating the opponent, right? In the primary or the general. I love that. I also like the pitch process, right? Like when you have to go get work, the pitch process is, is a competition and preparing for that and trying to be the best of that. I, I also really enjoy as well.
1: Right. The pitch process is competition with other firms and other consultants. And you can't compete in the big game if you don't make the team.
0: Yeah. People, you know, always ask me about the nature of doing the work. Right. And I'm like, look, the the work is the joy part that you get to do. You know, when you get to create advertising products, that's joyful. That's art. It's the fun expression portion of it. The actual work is getting the work. That is a process, and it's a difficult process. It's a challenging process, and and you either love it or you hate it. I happen to love it, so it suits me.
1: What was your route coming out of the Ohio University into the workforce?
0: Yeah, I, I had made my way um, out to the West Coast. I had made my way to LA. I've had like luck in life along the way, and in, in many aspects. I've thought back and noticed these little serendipitous moments that if there is any such thing as destiny, it's definitely played its part uh, in my life in many ways. So, so I move out to the West Coast and, and I was able to stay with a friend of mine who I had played football with who's a couple of years ahead of me, which meant I had kind of a social circle to start out there. And, and I was doing three things simultaneously. I was pursuing additional film credentials And I had gotten a job in advertising and production simultaneously. So I'm going to school. I'm working to support myself. And I had gotten a very early preliminary job in advertising through the friend that I was staying with in the most random of ways. I was living in Sherman Oaks at the time. So we had to cross over the mountain to get into L.A. proper. He's like, we're going to go bowling. I'm going to introduce you to the folks. Great. Let's go bowling. So we go bowling. So we're at this bowling alley and these folks show up that he is friendly with as part of his, his social circle. And I'm just doing what I do is just having fun, being social, talking to people there, talking to people at the bar, talking to people everywhere and struck up a conversation with one of the gentlemen that was there. And he said, look, you're a pretty social guy. You like talking to people. What's your background? I talked to him about it. And he's like, look, I I, I run an agency. It's a newer agency. And he said, I think you'd be great in the accounts department. And I'm like, well, this is great. I studied advertising. Sure, I need the job. You know what I mean? I had like three different side jobs at the time: one at the gym, one at the dry cleaners, one at a pizza shop. I, it, I had all these kind of little side gigs to to be able to uh, afford to live. And the idea of one job was wonderful. And he said, "Look, I know you got a, you're, you're studying simultaneously, so you're going to work as many hours as it takes. I don't really care." when you work them, as long as all the projects you're involved in are kind of always on time from your perspective. And I said, that's, that's perfect. It was a very kind of flat structured agency. It was called Juice Creative. And they would let people kind of interact on the front end in the pitch process of, okay, this is the content the client we're going after. And oftentimes in those places, you don't come to the pitch process as, Hey, we're this particular agency. This is what we do. You come with an idea. Right. Like you get a creative brief in an RFP and you're essentially proposing a solution oftentimes to that client for the campaign going forward. And sometimes the idea and the agency wins, sometimes the idea wins and they hire another agency to execute ideas. It's kind of a weird thing. But I had been part of the process that came up with the ideas a few times. And when I had come up with those ideas, eventually the the same gentleman who hired me said, look, I I think you're going to excel in our creative department. Why don't you move over there? And I'm like, great. So I was there as a, I was a, a copywriter and I had some design skills. So I would help fill in on the art direction side as well. And then eventually progressed up to a junior creative director position. That was great. I mean, we were working on major accounts, pitching major stuff. It was a lot of fun. It was highly intense, just like politics are. So I think that through line existed there as well. And then eventually I saw that California was going to potentially have this SB, uh, I think it was SB 187 that they that had already kind of happened and been defeated, but they were like playing with multiple new elements of it. And it was the first time that I saw kind of firsthand that people were actively targeting immigrants for political gain. Because growing up just in my neighborhood alone, it was, you know, maybe 50% Latino, 30, 40% African American, 10% other, right? And like, lots of immigrants. And the targeting of immigrant groups was us just messing with each other, right? And you know, it was more about the jokes we would make against each other, even inside of the Latino community, than it was ever anything targeted that I remember experiencing. And so I said, man, I want to do something about this. And so I had gotten involved and with some friends, we made a documentary, we gave the documentary up to everyone. I think a local PBS station picked it up Uh, And then we submitted it for some different awards, and it won some different film awards around the country. And then I remember experiencing some success with that and sitting and working on these accounts that were just selling products to people. And that was the win if you could increase market share. And I had like what I call my quarter life crisis, which was right around the age of 25, 24 to 26, something like that. I'm like, I don't want to sell products anymore. I want to be a part of something more important, more substantial, something that has an impact on on the world. I had some issues I knew I cared about. I certainly cared about immigration and the plight and the importance and the treatment of, of immigrants being kind of closely connected to the immigrant experience and strongly cared about education because there were a lot of friends that I grew up with who I would say were incredibly intelligent people who ended up having some really negative outcomes in life because they did not have the access that I was very lucky to get just because I got a scholarship. So it was something that was very important to me that like, this is not an equitable situation. And then just the equity of working people, you, you, you know, was something that meant a lot to me. My mother was a choir director, you know, my father worked in construction. And so it wasn't, you know, it was mostly a very humble kind of working experience, very regular I think i have that kind of work ethic that carries through as well i then just literally said okay well you know how is kind of this thing that i do done in politics because i had seen some political ads and i remember (laughs) this was years ago so i guess it's fine i was struck by how bad they were at least on the democratic side i'm like these are really bad. To me, they're not the kind of ads that would ever be effective because they were so dense with information. And they were kind of like, in some ways, explainer videos. And I'm like, nobody is going to respond to that that way. And, And I said, I think I can have an impact here. So I just started sending a reel out and checking my connections to different potential agencies that existed in the political space. And I got one of them to take a chance on me. And I came in as kind of like a Swiss army knife, creative person there. And I would do production and direction and writing. And it was an interesting place because it was Strother Duffy Strather, which was like kind of this old Southern firm. That was not my world. You know what I mean? Yeah, I've, I've had uh,
1: Dane on the show, so. Yeah,
0: yeah. D- Dane was great. Dane, I learned a lot from him. I respect him a great deal. One of the best things I learned from Dane, one of the most impressive things I learned from him was the importance of family. He and his father's relationship was very strong. And this is a gentleman who would put everything aside for his boys. And I always found that really impressive. He was a hell of a speechwriter too, but he was, it was just like the importance his sons played in his life was always impressed with me. And I still think about that today.
1: Ray Struther has a very good political memoir. If no one has read it. oh no, I've
0: I've read all his books. He has a, he has a fiction book. And then he has, you know, his uh, falling up book. Obviously I, I read them both working for the guy. He's a really like, savant writing genius. You know, he he could do these things because he would kind of come in and out of the office. He wasn't really working full time anymore. And you would have a concept, an idea. And if you were lucky enough to get a moment with him to have him look at it, he could kind of adjust it very slightly and make it much better just by that kind of wisdom that he would apply to it. It was a great experience being able to learn and see how how they how they did things.
1: So you had like some judgment about political ads, which I think I would agree with generally. And then you saw what they were doing. did you Did you feel like they were making good political ads, or did you still think, hey, these could be a lot better out there?
0: no, i I, I thought they were doing good stuff. It was clever. It was emotionally impactful. I remember watching a piece that Ray had done that was uh, for Congressman John Lewis. It was almost like a mini doc. I don't remember how long it was. might've been a four or five minute film. I think they were honoring him somewhere, but but he showed it to me and I'm like, oh yeah, this is, this is really, really good. Ray just kind of had those types of ideas. And if you read in his book, he say he's, I don't necessarily, like, I think it's a different relationship now, but I think he wrote in the book, okay, finally the pollsters have taken over. Because I think before polling was used in the way that it's very definitive in how we do stuff today, Ray was kind of given a creative license to come up with ideas and just do them and see if they worked. And so he was still in that vein of like let me come up with an awesome amazing story and idea and sell that and and see if that's effective as opposed to hey, the poll says we need to say these three things and people regurgitate those and that becomes an ad. Yeah, that was a good experience. I thought they were doing good things and then I added my unique touch to the stuff that I was able to get involved in there. Going back to my statement of getting the work is the work. I thought I was coming in as a, you know, someone who was working in the creative department as this multi, you know, and use creative person. And they said, oh man, you got to sell some stuff too. And I'm like, okay, great, fine. And they're like, yeah, you need to go meet the kids at the C." This is literally in my first couple of weeks there. And I'm like, sure, I'll do it what's the DCCC? <laughs> so literally oh, oh, what I asked. Yeah. oh, yeah. So it was like, you know, babe in the woods thing. Yeah. But I, I think that was good. Because I just didn't have a whole lot of fear making phone calls and connecting with people on a, on a cold call level, which I was actually telling this story the other day. So I'll, I'll bring it back up. But, you know, when you're playing sports, sometimes they will help you find internships if you're trying to go to school during that time period, right? So a low-level booster for one of the teams, and he offered me a. He was an investment banker, and he ran a local division. And he said, "Look, I'll bring you in. We'll see if you make it, and then if you want, we'll sponsor your Series Seven, Series Eleven, whatever things." And he brought me in, and I was in the call room, the literal kind of little sweatshop room, and you're just making calls to a big folder of lists. At that time, it was literally on paper. <laughs> you're making the, these calls all day, trying to get people to say, "Yeah, I'm interested in this investment product," so you can hand them off to you know, a licensed broker that could, could talk to them. It was the real deal. They would walk in and they'd be like, there's not enough calls being made. And they would take the shares out of the room and make everybody stand up. Well, and look, it was competitive to who's going to get the most people on the phone. He's standing
1: up through this interview right now. I'd like to exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know. I am. I am. I've been sitting down too much today. So in that time of calling a random guys that random family that owns a series of dry cleaners who never heard from you before, and I'm trying to sell them a thing that kind of cold call skill and talking to people who I didn't know just kind of became natural to me. And I also think like growing up in a large family, you're always fighting for a little bit of attention, like from the the important folks. And so I was good good at fighting for attention too.
1: You know, there's hardly anyone I've ever talked to who whatever they ended up doing that was impressive wasn't on the back of lots of unpredictable early learnings. You can look backwards and it makes sense, but it never would have made sense when it was happening necessarily.
0: No, not at all. I agree, and and I think my life is much the same way.
1: You strike me as a bit of an extrovert. Would you say that's true?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think so. I'm definitely extroverted, and when you read about extroverts, it's the question is do you are you energized by being around lots of people, right? And definitely, I that that is definitely true. But as a creative, I also really value alone and quiet time, so that I can process ideas and let them come to me it's kind of a weird odd mixing of both maybe right like i don't mind being with people but i also need to be alone where i can think and ideate so that i can do the job that people hire me for
1: makes sense what came after struther duffy struther
0: that was a really interesting time and so you know at different points in my life my my grandfather was a large influence on me and my father were both were both entrepreneurs and different family members and immigrants are naturally entrepreneurial. So if you're spending a lot of time around immigrant communities, you kind of get that vibe. So I'm after strawler Duffy strawler and I'm trying to figure out what is going to happen next. And they were in the process of kind of figuring out where they were going to go. And I had gotten calls from them to maybe come work with those folks. And I was sitting there saying, okay, political campaigns and political media is done in this certain way. And it's different than how I was trained to do it. And and there are a lot of different levels in that into the way you approach the creative, into the way you approach the clientele, even some some ways in the replication of ideas. And like, man, you can't replicate ideas in advertising. You get fired. Like, you know, oh, you stole that campaign from somebody else, your career is over, you'll never work again. So I thought, okay, what do I, what is it that I want to do? And and I said, look, I think I have a unique perspective. And I think I have something offered to, to campaigns that's different than what's currently available. And I have a series of these creative talent connections throughout my life's journey at that point that I knew I could bring to bear to try something different. And so I said, I'm going to see if I can make it on my own, which was crazy, right? Because DC was never really an entrepreneurial town. And everybody I talked to, well, not everybody, a few people I talked to, most of them I would say was like, nah, man, like you're not going to make it. It's not going to work. And I said, um, OK, I heard that before in many instances in my life, in my football career, in my early advertising and film career and all that. And I said, hell with it. I'm going to try it out. So it was lucky, right? Like I'm a, I was a young guy, youngish guy, and I had some roommates. We were renting a house at the time that was owned by one of the roommate's parents. And so I said, look, guys, I'm going to try to do this thing on my own. So there may be a case I'm going to do my best not to have it happen where I got to pay the rent 10 days late. And like, it's cool, man. We get you. We support you. No problem. And so I did it. And I ended up picking up some clients early on that were small, that were locals that had been ignored by other people. A gentleman, Jamie Sexton, who I'm sure you know, and I've talked to, he called me up once and gave me one of my first kind of official clients. It was SEIU in North Carolina, which was primarily state workers. One of their consultants wouldn't write some ads for them or something happened. I don't know. And he says, hey, man, would you put together some ads for for this SEIU client? Of course I will. So call up the SEIU client and uh, we have a conversation. And I was so excited to write these ads and they needed two ads. I gave them 23 options for ads within a day. And the guy was like, whoa, 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 this is too many ads, man. Which ones do you actually want me to read? So they became an anchor client for me. And then I just started to kind of go after stuff where people needed a high level of creativity but maybe did not have a huge budget to to be able to do that and because i had a background in production and film i could run the camera myself if i needed to right like i knew how to light i could light something if i had to and i could find a way to make really good things for a third of the price of what my competitors were doing it and that's what i did one of the biggest races in my career early on was in indianapolis of all places it was a marion county prosecutor's race Marion County's Indianapolis, where a Democrat hadn't been the prosecutor in 16 years. And I convinced them that I would give them ideas, great ideas. They took a chance and hired me, which started a lifelong friendship with that gentleman, Terry Curry, who became the district attorney until sadly he passed away a few years ago. And we won and we won big. All those kind of little things were were. Um, moments in my career that, you know, kind of spurred me along and just gave me the next thing to get by. Right. Because when you're, when you're an entrepreneur, you're kind of white knuckled sometimes like, shit, I don't, I mean, look, you know, it's like, am I going to make the payroll this month? And it's stressful. It's also fun. And there were a lot of those things that helped me get, get going. A lot of it had to do with Spanish language skills. I could speak and write Spanish enough. And correctly enough, from a more, I call myself, a, you know, like I learned in the kitchen. You know what I mean? It was never, I didn't have a formal education in it, which was great because when you had to do your your Spanish language kind of equivalency stuff in high school, which you have to do or your foreign language equivalency, I could just pass the test and test out of it. I also did that in college. Like it was very easy for me to get my two years of foreign language was so take Spanish, right? I was helping people figure out where their ads were wrong. And so other consultants would pay me. To assist them, especially when they were, it was Latino-focused work, on on how to do stuff. There's a firm, Divine Mulvey, which is now I think Divine Mulvey Logenbaugh, and, and those guys were very, very helpful to me early on. They would hire me as a contract director to go around and direct ads in places where they needed like a Latino ad right? They say, okay, you speak Spanish, go in here and and direct this ad for me. And it was cobbling together some of my own clients, cobbling together being a contract director slash creative for them on certain projects that enabled me to, to kind of continue to build a portfolio work. And then eventually a style of work that was known by enough people that people just started to come to me for things, you know, especially when it became, you know, which took way too long to understand, but when people started to understand the importance of the Hispanic vote in the United States, and then it was like, okay, this guy knows what he's doing here. He'll make sure that what we do is culturally relevant.
1: I remember well that part of my career where I was not established yet. As you were going through that, what was your general outlook? You talked about being white knuckled. I remember not sleeping. My meager savings were dwindling at a certain point. How were you thinking about this journey and how long did you stay out on your own?
0: I stayed out on my own, man, I, it was probably two or three cycles. And during that journey, I was just really happy because what happened is I would work with people in, in a campaign setting, and then maybe it was the pollster, maybe it was the mail person, maybe it was the campaign manager communication director would end up somewhere else. And they had appreciated the work I'd done, had enjoyed working with me, and they would ask me to come be a part of another race. And And I look, I, I remember being on my own with two employees, and pitching against the heavyweights of the industry at that time, which they were like five or six in this you know, kind of this early stage. There's many, many more firms now, but at this time it was like these old established phones. And I was beating them. I was beating them on creative talent, some hustle and probably some level of energy that they thought they were gonna get a little bit more from me. And that was a process I always enjoyed. When you grow up without a whole lot, I think you're a little bit more comfortable, at least I was, with if the whole thing crashes, whatever, right? Like I can, I can do it again and I can go get a job with somebody because I have skills that people can use.
1: There's also something I think about being the insurgent. Like when you're competing with bigger firms, you could price it lower, you could offer more, you don't have processes. It's the same thing as a politician. Like there's, not, there's a big difference between an incumbent being careful And worrying about offending all of the people that they have to worry about a broad coalition that they already have relationship to, to somebody who has much less to lose.
0: Totally. And I think that's a superpower. When you can come in and be a a disruptor in a space where people are comfortable, they don't have necessarily the propensity to worry about it because they've still got enough to eat. They're still happy and they're like, oh, he'll get a few things. We don't care. It's never going to go anywhere. But then eventually it started to be a lot. You know, I, I started to snatch off a, a bunch of stuff. People started, I remember no creative directors really existed in firms when I got to town. And then when I started doing a lot of my own stuff, all of a sudden some people I were, was competing against their firms had creative directors. And I'm like, huh, I wonder why that happened. <laughs> I can't say it was all me, but like I knew that the folks I was competing against that I had beaten a few times now had a new position on their on their payroll to I think compensate for that, but who knows?
1: So what was next for you?
0: Through study and it just through the mentors I had talked to and read about, I knew that I could only get so far as me, as the, the big lead of everything. And I was looking around the industry at the time, and you know when I would go to functions that were consultant functions, right, the AAPC and campaigns of elections and stuff like that, I gravitated toward a certain series of folks that we just seemed to get along really well together and would end up hanging out there. And, and you know, after that, and, and they were just like honest to goodness, good people. And at the end of the day, when I was looking, okay, how do I want to do this? There were a couple of things that I considered. One is, who do I like? And is there an opportunity with people who I genuinely like, right? Because in this business, you've got to spend a lot of time with people. You've got to have some element of trust. I think it's probably the most important thing in entrepreneurial journeys together. And, you know, is there someone that is in the same lane I'm in where we compete against each other at some level? And what if we combine forces? And at that point in time, it was Matt Erickson and Sarah Flowers who had started their own firm after working for... What was LKK partners, which was Don Legans and Martin Hamburger and, and Dan Culley? we ended up pitching against each other once or twice in our kind of early year journeys. I remember I won one and they won one. I reached out to them because we'd always had good relationships and said, Hey, you know, do you guys want to talk about potentially working together? and they were very receptive to it. And you know, we sat down and just talked about it. And it took really only one meeting before we thought this is a good thing to do. And then everybody was doing their due diligence. Like we let the attorneys do their things to see uh, if this made sense. And then we, we created a, nor- a, a new corporation that was all three of us. and And that was a great experience. It was a great experience. We did a lot of really amazing, important work together. I'm very proud of, they remain friends. They're very talented in their own right and, uh, and in all of the things that they pursue and do. How many years did that go from? I think it was like the early stages of 2015 to early 2023. And what
1: was that firm called?
0: 76 Words.
1: I think I first reached out to you to come on the show when that was the firm that you were on. and So it seems quite recent that you parted with those two individuals and embarked on a new chapter, I guess. Tell me about that.
0: So what I saw and what I continue to see is there is finally a focus and an understanding that voters of color, Latino, African-American voters, AAPI voters, um, they're not just Democratic voters. There are voters that need to be communicated with. They are voters that are really, as we look at swing states moving forward, are the most important voters, as this country continues to run races, they're the most important voters that exist. And if you look at the Latino voter space, majority of the new voters every year are actually Latino. I said, I want to build something very specifically to to deal with that problem, to make sure that Democrats don't neglect it, to make sure that we have the resources and the people in place to be able to take this challenge on. That, for me, was is multimodal. And what I mean by that is, yes, we have to win these political battles. We're fighting for the future of democracy here, literally this year, and we can't lose that. And it, and it means they need people specialized to be able to win these campaigns. And that was part, one part of it. Also, you know, I heard the statement years before that politics is downwind of culture. I was watching Republicans very expertly create this kind of digital and linear universe of radio and television and digital properties that was creating a culture that was seeping their kind of conservative point of view into mainstream everything. And Democrats were just playing this reactionary role to it, you know? And I'm like, well, it's, it's going to be very difficult to beat these guys who are watering their garden all year long when we just spend this eight-week period trying to water ours and make our flowers grow at the same time. And looking at Conexion, I said, we have to be able to do the political work. We have to be able to handle the communications work that explains to people why things in government matter to them, right? Why policies matter to them, why some public affairs issues like broadband expansion and broadband improvement in rural and and urban areas to communities that may not be well served matters. So I said, we need to be able to communicate on those issues that creates more parity and more equality it, with the basis of things that, that will help people kind of control their economic destiny. And then I said, culturally speaking, we've got to be able to engage here in uh, multiple ways that um, are going to enable us in the future to really, at the end of the day, say, okay, these people who are being demonized, they're a whole hell of a lot more like me than what I think they are and their stories are important. And there's like a lot of similarities and through lines, but you cannot do that through a political lens all the time because that political lens then creates this resistance to it. Connexion, when I started to have these conversations, Adrian Science and I had been friends for years and you know, Adrian Science. I was relatively new in town, and Latino Victory was starting up. And Cristobal and I became friends. He said, "Can you help me? You know, kind of with this mission that I have with this organization." And I said, "Absolutely, whatever you need, no charge. This is important work. I'm in." And I met Adrian through that connection. And we had always been good friends, and kind of had tangentially worked together, but never in the same setting or firm. And Adrian had left his firm, gone into the White House. And then was kind of thinking about what his next step was going to be. And we reconnected. And, you know, I told him what my vision of the future was. He had a very similar vision. And we spent some time kind of dating and going through what our visions were, which was this comprehensive vision of a series of entities that would be able to have this real major impact in the world over what our kind of timeline was the next 10 years. And said, hey, let's try to build this thing together. And that is what Conexión. Uh, The political agency is and connection, public engagement, which is the public affairs. And then, you know, two more entities that are forthcoming that I'll I'll share more about when they're kind of out there, but that also take care of that cultural piece and then um, really are specialized in buying the way that younger people of color consume media which is not like how it used to be. It is different. It's really difficult, by the way. And so we are working very hard on creating the experts in that field to be able to do that in a way that's the most impactful for everyone.
1: I got the sense that you had put together a reasonable number of people at this point. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Right now, the, the founding partners are Adrian and myself, and, and we have Marcia Espinosa, Marcia Catron Espinosa, and Pili Tovar. And Peely has been in the political campaign world for a number of years and worked in the White House. I think she was deputy comms director in the White House and has had a series of different positions in the kind of communication ecosystem and especially as it relates to Latino communications in democratic politics forever. And then Marsha has been a chief of staff and worked on a number of campaigns and was most recently in DHS. So we approached them early on and talked about if they saw a similar future and they were like, yeah, we love it. We're in, let's figure out how to do it together. And so those are kind of the core folks that, you know, have started it. Again, there's some other pieces coming out, which I can't talk about now, but I'm excited to tell you about them in the future with some other folks. And then our teams that came along with that. Adrian has some of his folks. I had a large creative team that, you know, even when Adrian and I were working on putting the firm together, we were still doing races, right? You know, we're still out there doing stuff, helping with the Chicago mayoral, Pennsylvania judicial race, Houston mayoral. Like we were just actively doing work while we were building the kind of firm's infrastructure. So my creative team came, their communications teams came so we've had this basis for a really competent, well-staffed, well-structured agency from the beginning. And now we're just building on that.
1: So who have you landed as clients and who would you love to have as clients that you don't yet?
0: That's an awesome question. So, you know, I think being able to do the presidential reelect specifically looking at the Latino voter space, I don't know if there could be a more important thing to be tasked with. So, it is a dream opportunity to be a part of that, and for Adrian to want to bring me into that process with him. The dream client exists, and I've got it.
1: The problem with that client, everybody I've ever talked to who's worked politically for a presidential in any significant capacity, firm or no firm, it tends to uh, it tends to drive a lot of the whole company. It can absorb almost any amount of attention, right?
0: Yeah, it does, and we've specifically structured to be able to handle that. Or early on, we knew that was going to be one of our clients as we were building out the firm, so we built out the capacity to be able to have an entire creative team that handles that. Okay. We have Gallego for Senate in Arizona, and we have Debbie Carson Powell for Senate in Florida, and we have Gloria Johnson for U.S. Senate in Tennessee. Those are actual dream clients for me. And I'll get into some other members of Congress like Gabe Vasquez, who's a dream client as well. These people all are, are the kind of folks you want to work for, for a number of reasons that start way back at the beginning of my mission. Ruben grew up as one of four in a family that was raised by a single mom. He's Colombian and Mexican and the guy who found a way to make his way to Harvard. Right. And then he's fighting his way through Harvard. Like I felt I was fighting my way through school. And he said, this is tough. And he went to the Marines for a year. Ended up in Iraq, then comes back, completes his education, and becomes you know a political leader. After that, this is the kind of people that I think we need more of in in government, and because they, they're in touch with real people. Debbie, in in the case of Florida, dream client, close personal friend, which is a benefit. I've made some really lifelong friends with clients, and first South American immigrant ever elected to Congress. You know, it's a huge deal. And you know, if we win this U.S. Senate race, she'll be the first. South American ever immigrant ever to serve in the United States Senate, you know, and uh, and she's of South American as a woman of Ecuadorian descent that, you know, they don't have a whole lot of representation in the government as well, which is another kind of bonus to it. And I didn't actually know this until after we had won the election, which we did with three in that year. She was the first Latina damn elected to Congress from Florida, which if you can believe that, with the Latino population that exists in Florida, along with, we did that same year, uh, Veronica Escobar and Sylvia Garcia, uh, who were the first two Latinas from Texas. And I'm like, 2018 is the first time we've elected Latinas from Texas too? Like what's going on here? And you know, Gabe Vasquez a first generation American who spent his time working in his grandfather's radio repair shop across the border, then made his way through working through school to, to be able to come, on the city council in and then be the, you know, kind of the democratic member of Congress from the, the largest and most Latino district in the country. Those are all dream clients because they're incredibly difficult challenges. And, and I love them. We work for f- folks who give us a lot of trust in, in telling their stories um, and groups that put a lot of faith in us. Like we have this really talented multicultural team that does work for black pack which is the largest most powerful independent expenditure organization targeted towards black voters and like we built a team that's specifically built to be able to handle those kind of creative challenges we're doing this highly focused Latino and african-american and and you know not only general market work as well but it's like People are realizing it's like it's black and brown people that move pop culture forward in, in many ways. And like we are now helping define that universe from a political creative perspective. And then Gloria Johnson in Tennessee, you just got to spend 10 minutes listening to her talk before you love her. And just to, to give you a little bit of insight into that, I worked in a mayoral race. Where my cousin actually became the mayor of Knoxville, Tennessee. Someone who was going to run for state rep had seen the ad, said, I like them. Can you introduce me? So it was Gloria. I met Gloria, did her state rep races, which I just did because I loved her. She called me up and said, I think I'm going to run for U.S. Senate. What do you think? And I'm like, if not you, then who? So we jumped on this journey together. But I, I, when I was writing her intro ad, which you know was one of these kind of intro ads that gets some virality, you know, there were a couple of curse words in there. And then you know, there's a team of people, and I won't mention any organizations or or names, less consultants and more kind of stoic places, you know, they were like, we don't, you know, we don't know. You can't curse in this video. I don't, I don't know about that. And I'm like, y'all don't know Gloria. Like she drinks beer, she owns a gun and she curses. This is her. This is why people love her. And she finally weighed in. She said, look, I'm comfortable with this and this is what I'm doing. And I wanted to, she says uh, bullshit in the end of the ad. And I, and you know, everybody's like, we should bleep it out. And she's like, I'm saying bullshit and nobody is bleeping it out. And, uh, and so, like, I mean, how can you not love clients like that, right? I would say in the future, dream clients, clients that need to engage major brands and large organizations that need to engage in the Latino space and want to be part of helping change culture. Those are the future dream clients.
1: What, what is the theory behind what you think needs to be done in communicating to diverse audiences, as you put it? What is different? What do you know that you wish other people on our side knew that you can bring to bear here?
0: I think just being of the communities you're communicating with gives you this inherent perspective that is different than people who haven't been in those communities. And it doesn't mean that people who haven't been in those communities don't have the capacity to be able to do work there, but there's very simple things. That are cultural cues that show whether or not you understand the universe you're communicating with, and I can illustrate this by how we did a couple of ads. Yeah, we were doing ads for the state legislature in Miami, and we're running them in distinctly different Latino areas. So, in one IP address targeted neighborhood, we had a certain grandmother with a certain accent cooking a certain type of beans and rice, right? And it was a largely Cuban audience there. And so we had arroz congri or black beans and rice. And then in a different neighborhood that was less Cuban and more kind of Puerto Rican and mixed Latino, we had a completely different type of rice being made, right? And different accents on the wall and different music. But if you weren't from those communities, you would never know to kind of make those distinctions. So I think it starts there. Do you kind of understand the community because you've spent some time there? And in democratic politics, we've been winning races with black and brown uh, voters for years without a lot of black and brown people involved in the decision-making and communication processes. When you start to see hemorrhaging of the vote, that's why. You're not getting enough communication that's kind of relevant and is connecting with those communities, which is really why we named the firm Connexion, right? Like we don't want to communicate, we want to connect with people. So, I think that's that's the primary one. If you want to communicate with people, you've got to understand what their lived experience is, and not from an abstract point of view from actually being in it. Politics for folks like myself, for a lot of folks who had you know come from some humble means when I got in it, uh, it was tough. and I would see the campaign was like, you know, you're gonna work for nine months and then you may spend six, eight months unemployed, right? Like most people don't have that luxury that you know come from the place that you know that I come from, it would become a little bit homogenized. Now that's changing and their organization's working on changing that. Our firm is working, you know, every day on continuing to change that by how we staff and hire and look for talent. And so I think that's it. And I think it's changing. It's not changing fast enough, but it's changing.
1: So I think that's very plausible and I certainly would imagine in any type type of community, something might be more successful if it was fully targeted at you and you could not look at it and, and know that it was off. But there's a lot more like supposing you're up against another firm that also is staffed by people you know, that know these communities, then the playing field in that regard is the same. There's a lot of tools now for figuring out whether a particular ad works or not. I think there's the kind of the poetry and the prose of this stuff, and it's complicated to know things. But how do you think about like distinguishing your work in terms of really being sure that it has the impact that you want? Because sometimes ads actually backfire, even that are written and produced beautifully. How do you think about like adding some of the scientific side to it? Or do you think that? Like you have enough experience, you bring enough time in, in various campaigns watching this and seeing what works or not. How do you think about that aspect?
0: I happen to be a creative that appreciates data. So I, I like to see feedback. Some of the challenges in the way we're doing testing now, especially when it's towards communities of color, it, like the universes aren't big enough that the, I think the ad tests are reflective of specific areas that we're targeting with specific regional variances, Right testing an ad nationwide that's geared for the Southwest or in Phoenix. No, that
1: doesn't seem appropriate at all, but you got going to have to, but, you're going to have to find the way to test the ad exactly. that you're working on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I love to see people react in person. That's yeah. for me that the old, like the old. Like a, fo- like a
1: focus group. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because some, a lot of the reactions are subtle, you know? And like, if, if everybody's quiet after the ad plays and it was a, you know, an emotional ad, you know, you've had some impact because they haven't come forward with an idea yet. I love the ways that we can target You know, now in our increasing ability to refine universes via age and via demographics. Those kind of filters I think are really helpful. And then seeing how different communities respond to things uh, is also very helpful. But I think testing has some limitations creatively and oftentimes, like, let me put it to you like this. I think I can write, write ads that and the team, i not just speaking for myself, that we think that we believe are going to have a strong emotional impact. And then we can write ads that we think are going to score the highest in tests. We have done this before and largely been successful. The problem is these two things aren't necessarily congruent. Sometimes they are, but oftentimes they're a little bit divergent. And the best example I have for this, it doesn't have anything to do with our work, um, although I will reference a piece of our work. When Nike came out with its famous, ad that mimics 1984 and the, you know, the woman running and she throws, I mean, this is like, wait, uh, wait, that, wait, in that the, was Apple, right? Apple. Yeah. yeah. Pardon me. Yeah. Apple. Um, Apple's 1984 ad, like that's are argued to be the best ad of all time. It's that and the Coke multi-voice, multinational sing I want to share a Coke. Uh, those are like everybody, these are the best. And um, that ad would have for Apple would have failed if Steve Jobs had relied on testing for it. Because people would have said, it's too dark. I don't know. It makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't know what it means. Like It would have failed horribly in testing. But he believed in it, and he went with it, and it ended up being this hugely impactful campaign. So there's some faith I think you gotta, you got to have in it, too. But I, I don't ignore the data, and I think there are ways, and we're, it's a part of the process now. You're never going to avoid ad testing. It's part of it. The question is, how can you use ad testing to help influence and solve the creed? like creative challenges, as opposed to just making it dictate every creative kind of move you make.
1: I think there's some conventional questions to ask around this, probably not new to you, but I want to ask anyway, which is one, like there is some controversy right now about whether ads make any difference, political ads. It is hard for a political scientist to find an a impact of a particular ad or of an ad campaign first of all it's often because there's an ad on the other side that is canceling it out and there are is more and more impetus to compete media dollars or, against other aspects of campaigning like digital ads or digital outreach or field programs or all of the other things that campaigns can do with money does this all like happen sort of above you and you don't have to worry about that decision or Do you think about like, well, we could be using this money uh, on TV, but we could also be using it in another way?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I understand what you're getting at. So I'll I'll try to break it down piece by piece. I think, um, you know, while political scientists can't say an ad, you know, maybe whether or not an ad had an impact, I mean, we see it in polling, right? So I would argue that when we launch certain ads, we see the vote numbers move and oftentimes move outside of the margin of error. So we know that there's something happening there when we start our communication campaigns. Whether or not they work as a general rule, I have had clients that I've worked for because my heart was with them. Unfortunately, they could not get going and they may have had even a way superior name ID at the beginning of the race. They lose the race if they haven't raised enough money to to communicate with their competition. I don't view that as anecdotal. I think those are real hard words data results where someone who had less name ID was able to beat the incumbent with better name ID and a better overall favorability rating in the end because they outcommunicated them significantly. Now, it, did they use all of those modalities? Yes. I don't view TV and digital as separate. To me, that's just your part of your media campaign. So it's not a question of do we move TV dollars to... We just move... Wherever the eyeballs are is where we should move these dollars, right? And we should deliver these messages in the most effective formats, Period, you know, long, short, in the middle. I don't care. I just want it to go to the right people at the right time about the right message. And to me, the break between linear and digital is an artificial break. People are making their choices on where they want to view 30 and 15 second ads by where their eyeballs are. And that's where we got to put them. We've got to move in accordance with those patterns. So, but in campaigns, um, yes, I have oftentimes been in a campaign where I say, because of the media market expense, or because of the timing, or because of just the saturation of political ads, maybe we get another two or 300 grand at the end of a race. And I, and I say, look, I can spend it. It's going to be, have a very marginal impact at this point. Move it into something else. Move it into a field program. Move it into some kind of a partner program with, with more- Relational organizing or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. 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 Mo- move it into something different. At the end of the day, I'm not paid to make ads that I like and that people are thinking. I'm paid to help people win. So let's put those dollars where they're going to win.
1: One of the things that kind of become new to me, it's not too new, is this idea of influencers. And I know the White House is attentive to that. They've had people who are influencers there. There are folks who reach 2 million people with their posts. And it feels like there's a type of content, maybe it's TikTok content, something very short and video that, if it were in their hands, it could be spread a lot more than a conventional ad and you might not have to pay for it. Is there anything that you guys are contemplating or doing that involves that? Like, There are also groups that are bringing together sets of influencers to employ them for for progressive goals and so on.
0: Yeah. I'm going to answer one thing that I forgot on ads and backfiring and the way that they're viewed. We did this ad that they say may be the most viewed political ad of all time. It was in the Virginia governor's race in 2017. We made this truck ad. It was after they were gonna take down the statue. They had the riot and the the person with the truck ran some people over. It's where Trump infamously said there were good people on both sides with Charlottesville. So, So we made this ad that had a series of kids being targeted then eventually chased by a racist individual. Then at the very end of this ad they wake up and they realize it was a dream. And then we relate it back to, you know, the gubernatorial candidate and his support of Donald Trump and Donald Trump's support of him. And people went bonkers. They went nuts. And, you know, they said, oh, my God, I can't believe this. The differences in the responses between people of color and other folks was so distinctly different that you could tell it was coming from these kind of different worldviews. I think it was like Chris Todd or Chuck Todd was on TV. He's like well, I drive a pickup truck. Does that make me a racist? And I'm like, man, this dude missed the point here. Um, But what happened is that blew up. It became a controversy so much so that there were people trying to put us out of business. And I don't mean Republican. I mean, people in the democratic ecosystem trying to put 76 words out of business saying, if they remain your consultant, we won't give your organization any money. Most of those people said, we don't care. We think they're great. And then when they went back and did analysis after, it was the most powerful ad that anybody had run to not only targeted voters of color, but actually to suburban white women. And if they had tested that on the front end, they never would have saw that. But it ended up being the most impactful thing to them in the end. So I wanted to make sure that I talked about that one, because my message to people is you've got to have some courage in your creative ideas and be willing to not just do a thing that you think is going to test well. Because like that's not what this is about. You gotta be able to communicate in a human, emotional way, not a, a way that's always necessarily defined by digits and boxes.
1: It seems a little bit like allowing your candidate to swear. The, it, the question is- It's how real people like, talk. It's One, it's how real people talk. Two, if it does provoke controversy, it may have more impact. Unless it's really troublesome, unless you made a mistake and you embarrassed your candidate or or something like that. It does seem like those are the ones that break out and get heard and get shown a lot and earn a lot of media.
0: And uh, the, I think the question to those on their effectiveness or their backfireness was, was it done to try to garner attention or was it done to try to communicate a message, right? And in the case of that Virginia truck ad, it was just an experience that people had. I had that experience when I moved to a new high school and I was with my cousin and there was a story written about it. They were like, oh, these are these gangster kids are now here. And we had like this, there was a red, literal redneck gang that chased us home. He ended up being able to hide and they chased me for a longer period of time. And I dove into a canal and swam across it to get away to another cousin's house. And so that was based on a real experience. But I think the people who it was targeted to have have all had some experience or, or had some connection to it. And that was not done to garner controversy. It came from a real authentic place. And when, you know, your candidate's cursing, if they're cursing a curse, that's not going to work. If that is who and how they are and it's authentic to them, it will work. So trying to create a false controversy around, you know, in your advertising is normally a bad idea because people recognize that to lean into the, our point, people will see it's bullshit and recognize it as bullshit.
1: Did you see Patrick Raffini's recent book, about how the working class, that the Republicans now are the working class party and and they are, you know, clearly they've done increasingly well with white working class people, but, but that there's also a lot of inroads among working class uh, brown people, let's say. You know, you said we haven't communicated enough to these groups and that's the problem. But I think there also may be a problem around policy and attitude about work that comes from some elements of the progressive coalition, that the Democratic Party is becoming more a party of educated people that are uh, a little far from the experience of the majority of people in this country. Do you see that at all? And is that part of what needs to be done to communicate more effectively to them?
0: There's some definite truth in that. And I think the Republicans have had a concerted strategy and effort and and a lot of data and study into how to communicate to working class folks in a way that will have an effect on them. And the Democrats have kind of taken a lot of it for granted over an extended time period. I am encouraged that unions are on the rise and that there's a resurgent kind of organized labor effort and receptivity happening across the country now. I think it's a really good place and a good thing for Democrats. I think the decision makers oftentimes have historically come from certain highly educated Northeast class, maybe sometimes Southern, but like a highly educated class of people, maybe they've never had to work with their hands, right? They don't understand what it's like to work a construction job, man, which in my case, I have like I was very lucky to get those construction jobs in summers because they would pay me more than everybody else. And I look, I was a joy for me to be the trash guy because they were paying me $12 an hour when the minimum wage was five, right? Like or 515 or whatever the hell it was at the time. It was great. And I can sw- still sweep up better than anybody else. But yeah, I think they be- we've become disconnected from that. And I also think when it comes to kind of the communication into specific cultures, which you referenced. When it comes to like Latino culture, one of the things that I threw up a big red flag and was arguing about is there was this anti-American sentiment that started to permeate the Democratic Party very specifically after the George Floyd incident and the riots that came after that. And it became a certain segment of the Democratic coalition's messaging. And I said, you cannot have that kind of similar messaging to the Latino community. The Latino community is very entrepreneurial, right? Like Hispanic folks in this country have come here and are normally a few generations away from having a lot of success that they may not have had and access to opportunities they didn't have. And they're patriotic. Very, very. They love America. I mean, you know, look, if you look at the border crisis, so to speak, now, these are people who are coming here for an opportunity to work right? The opportunity to have a better future when they, you know, having, being able to take part in that, you know, people are very grateful for that. So they are very patriotic. They don't like that anti-American sentiment. They certainly think things need to be fixed and they're not happy with certain situations and want to be a part of changing it. But on balance say, man, you know, this is a hell of a lot better than the opportunity I had in this particular place. I am grateful for that. So it falls flat when they do that kind of thing. I also think, look, the Democrats don't do enough generally of building a a farm team of people that can move up through the ranks and not on the consultant side, but but even on the candidate side. So that there are some people of color and some working class people who make their way up into the kind of federally elected, well-known positions that have some game, that have some swag, that can communicate in multiple places with multiple people and understand it. And we've got to do a better job of that too. You know, They asked me about Latino men once, and and I said, look, if you look around, there's not a whole lot of Latino men in the Democratic Party representing the Democratic Party in a way and in a space where these people live their lives, where Latino men live their lives, you know, and that's why I'm glad a guy like Ruben Gallego is running because he very much gets it. He's from that. Also, the Republicans are very adept at saying this, you know, kind of progressive wing of the party has said this really outlandish thing, that's all we're going to talk about. So Democrats become that outlandish part of the party without standing up and saying, no, 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 hold on a second. We're the people that have been out here working to make sure that y'all have health care, that you can afford your insulin, and you know that you have a livable minimum wage. And we're the ones trying to make sure state school doesn't make your kids leave You know, after a four-year pursuit of an education, which is the dream for a lot of people of color. like, And they got $80,000 in debt. Like we need to be saying that stuff, that's real stuff.
1: Do you think you have enough of a free hand with your work with the Biden campaign to say the things that you you think ought to be said? I mean, it's always a negotiation between client and consultant and audience to get it right.
0: The Latino team trusts Adrian and Adrian and I's combined creative vision for things. And they listen and uh, they've been very receptive to our ideas and to strategies and even the way we have prescribed buying media. So I would say, yes, you know, you asked about influencer strategies and whether or not those are effective. I think they're highly effective. I don't view an influencer strategy as any different than, you know, if you go back 40 or 50 years, how people viewed newscasters, right? Like newscasters were pillars of whatever community I was a part of, and they were automatically trusted because of that. An influencer in some ways, is the same thing. It's like, I like this, and this influencer has a, a position of power, trust, and credibility there. I will listen to them if they talk about this issue because I trust them here it's not that different. It's just that the mediums have changed and they're bigger and broader and arguably more democratic. They're not controlled in these kind of finite spaces. Politics hasn't 100% caught up with that yet. We are still addressing that challenge and figuring out how to deal with it. And we're going to continue to figure out how to deal with it. But I can tell you that we're thinking about it all the time and designing programs to help utilize it all the time.
1: Colin, I, I think that I've probably taken more of your time than I ought to have, but I would you're the type of person that I'd love to talk to for a really long time. So let me just ask you, is there a question I should have asked that I failed to?
0: I mean, you ask some great questions. I think people sometimes ask me, what do I have any advice for, you know, folks engaging or want to engage in campaigns and get involved in politics that may not have a natural pathway there? And, and and I think the answer is just show up. I built my career by continually knocking on doors that were closed to me. And I knocked on those doors and I knocked on those doors and I let them know I was there and I improved my skills and I kept bringing them the best of what I could do with my ability until one day that door opened. Like when they said, man, okay, finally, we need a Spanish language ad. And I gave it to them. And then they would ask me one of the funniest questions of all time, which is, hey, can you do that in English? I'm like, man, we're on the phone in English. What do you mean you gonna do the ad in English? What kind of question is that? You know, and this is part of conexión as well. I think it is contingent upon the folks like myself, like Adrian, like Marsha, like Peely, and, and, you know, other folks in the industry with similar stories to make sure we're constantly kind of reaching down and pulling up and helping elevate people in our community to positions of power and positions of prominence and decision-making authority and getting them involved. I get the best ideas in my creative team from people who don't have a political background. And for folks that want to engage, find a way to engage, get involved in it. Just don't take no for an answer. It's a hard industry, but every good industry, every good thing you want to do is very difficult to get into. And this is no different. You just got to keep going at it. And and, and eventually it will open. It, it always does.
1: To me, you're you're really talking about entrepreneurial skills and, you know, entrepreneurial is not always a, a good word on the left. But I think that when you properly used when it's applied to uh, people trying to make make new organizations and make new make change and compete out there and do the best for whatever purpose they are, for whatever mission they're driving. I think it's important. You are kind of a serial entrepreneur in this political media space. Do you have any advice to people specifically in that area?
0: Yes. I, I think I got a good piece of advice for politics specifically when I first started. I wish I could attribute it to the person who told me, and I don't remember, but they said, making it in this business is holding on until you get your first big one. And then you're going to be set on the right path. And and I never lost sight of that as I was fighting to kind of stay relevant and make inroads in the industry and pay the rent, you know, and do all, you know, all the challenges that come along with entrepreneurialism until I got that big one. And once I got those one or two big ones, it took off from there as people that you were qualified, then, you know, you were kind of in the club. I think it's like a person of color firm. I'm still feel insurgent. I think I'll always feel insurgent. I think I search out those insurgent opportunities, and I work with insurgent candidates in some ways. So you got to keep that. You got to keep that. You just got to keep pushing. That's 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 what my advice has always been. And another thing to notice, is, to to recognize, is there's not necessarily and and I, and I I would I would actually ask your opinion on this after I'm done. I don't think there's enough entrepreneurs in politics. I think it becomes stale and we keep doing things the same way we've done. Like we need to have more space and more coaching for entrepreneurs and more opportunities for them to come and bring their wares when ideas and thoughts and disruption to, to the industry. We need it. We need it. You know, like the world is changing a hell of a lot faster than the political, you know, kind of like campaign machinery can keep up with. The only place we're going to solve that problem is entrepreneurs who come in with new ideas and new solutions on how to do things.
1: I have spent the last Six and a half years interviewing people, many of whom kind of qualify as political entrepreneurs. That's getting near a thousand people. Uh, but I agree with you. I think there is a lot of room for improvement. There's a lot of room for new ideas, a lot of room for for entrepreneurs, young and old, to try things in a new way. I'm glad to have the chance to talk to you. And, I, and I'm glad there are other people working because there's not many areas that are more important. Than, than the kind of work that those sort of people are doing
0: couldn't agree more and, and, and you said one important thing that I want to highlight like entrepreneurs young or old come at this at any age with a new idea it doesn't matter
1: and, and any any identity too I'm a little loath to over focus on identity, even though I think we've maybe underfocused on it at times. I do think we need messages that reach everybody and that those are powerful ones, but we also. At the same time, there are reasons to tailor messages to particular audiences of all types. Absolutely. Absolutely. Colin, thanks so much for time. Anything else you want to say?
0: No, man. Just thank you. I I love your podcast. I love what you're doing here and was happy to be a part of it and uh, would love to come back if you have more questions for me.
1: Uh, I'd love that. That was Colin. He is at MakeTheConexion.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at GreatBattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit DemocracyGroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement.